0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a peach Bellini. What do you have, in Jenny?
1: I'm drinking a mimosa, and on today's episode, we're exploring the disappearance of 13-year-old Nicholas Barclay and the bizarre aftermath. Nicholas Patrick Barclay was born on December 31st, 1980, in San Antonio, Texas. He had blonde hair and blue eyes, and at 13, he was small for his age, at only 4'8 and 80 pounds. Nicholas lived with his mother, Beverly Dollaride, 28-year-old sister Carrie, and 24-year-old brother Jason. He was prone to quote-unquote unpredictable and violent behavior and was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, or ADD. At only 13, Nicholas already had three tattoos, and it was not uncommon for him to skip school. When he did attend school, he would often get into trouble. Beverly claims that Nicholas would occasionally hit her and curse at her, causing her to call the police, and at that time, she said she couldn't control him. She had Nicholas's brother, Jason, move into the home in an effort to keep Nicholas under control. At a young age, Nicholas had a juvenile record in several run-ins with the law after threatening a teacher at school, breaking into a convenience store, and stealing a pair of shoes. On June 10, 1994, Nicholas disappeared after playing basketball with friends in San Antonio. According to the Charlie Project, he called home and wanted his mom to pick him up, but she was asleep and his older brother Jason refused to wake her and told him to walk home. When Nicholas didn't return home that night, his family was not immediately worried since he had run away before and he had a sentencing hearing coming up. At this hearing, Nicholas faced the possibility of being placed in a group home, which he was staunchly against. After Nicholas didn't return home for over a day, his family started to worry. Whenever he had left before, he had cash or a bag with him, but not this time. They contacted police on June 13th, and a missing persons case began. Authorities had a difficult time searching for Barclay, who had seemingly left on his own accord without a trace. Police were called to Beverly's home on two separate occasions after she and Jason had gotten into arguments after Nicholas's disappearance. Then in September, Jason called police claiming Nicholas was trying to break into the family's garage. Nicholas fled when he realized his brother had seen him. The police searched the neighborhood but couldn't find Nicholas. However, neither Beverly nor the police believed Jason had actually seen Nicholas that night. For three years, no one heard from Nicholas until October 1997, when authorities got a call from a man in Linares, Spain, claiming Nicholas was living in a Spanish youth shelter after escaping a child's sex ring and being found in a train station. The individual had dark brown hair and dark brown eyes and spoke with a French accent and European phrasing. He claimed his abductors had chemically altered his hair and eye color and that he was forbidden from speaking English.
0: Carrie, Nicholas's sister, flew out to Spain and her job covered the cost. She was ecstatic, but Nicholas seemed nervous and wouldn't speak much. He wore a lot of clothes and hat and stayed covered up. Carrie assumed the way her brother was acting was due to the trauma and abuse he had. He had experience. She brought pictures and talked to Nicholas about the family and reminisced with him about pastimes. Carrie confirmed the individual was 16-year-old Nicholas. He was quickly given a U.S. passport and taken to America. Neither U.S. nor Spanish authorities had any further questions. Nicholas was greeted at the airport by his family, and home video shows Beverly looking shocked and confused. Chantel, Carrie's daughter, said, quote, she just didn't seem excited the way you expect someone seeing her son, end quote. Though Beverly believed the teenager to be Nicholas, many people, including Nicholas's uncle, and police were suspicious. Older brother Jason did not visit Nicholas until over a month after his return. Jason had struggled with cocaine addiction during the time of Nicholas's disappearance, but had been sober since 1996. Nicholas lived with Carrie and her husband and settled back into family life in school. He told his family he was kidnapped by military personnel on his way home from playing basketball, driven to the airport, and tossed on a plane to Europe. After arriving, his kidnappers forced him into a sex trafficking ring. He was eventually able to flee and was discovered by European law enforcement. Private investigator Charlie Parker was hired by the tabloid show Hard Copy to investigate the unbelievable case he noted inconsistencies in Nicholas's story and behavior. When he compared photographs of Nicholas before and after the kidnapping and discovered that Nicholas's ear were different shapes and sizes. During this time, Nicholas's family had sent him to a psychiatrist to heal from his trauma. The psychiatrist noted that Nicholas Barclay could not speak without a French accent. He said it was impossible for a child who was raised in the U.S. by English-speaking parents to not be able to speak without a foreign accent. He expressed his concern to... The FBI, who warned Nicholas's family that their son may not be who he claimed. However, they were convinced it was Nicholas and Beverly, who was deemed uncooperative, refused to take a DNA test that would help confirm the individual's identity. When questioned, Nicholas refused to voluntarily provide blood samples or have his fingerprints taken to confirm his identity until a court order forced him to in February 1998. That's when it was discovered that Nicholas was actually 23 year old French citizen Frederic Pierre Bourdain, aka the Chameleon.
1: Bourdain was a serial imposter wanted by Interpol who had allegedly impersonated over 500 individuals, including other missing teens. He was raised by his grandparents in Mouchamps, France, and was socially outcast by his peers. Bourdain was sent to a private youth facility at the age of 12 after experiencing behavioral and emotional struggles. He was known to come up with quote-unquote little dramas and fanciful stories at one point pretending to be an amnesiac. He spent his youth in and out of group homes and faked his own death as an adult. So how and why did Bourdain pretend to be Nicholas Barclay? Ordan claimed that he was living in a Spanish youth shelter and had 24 hours to prove to a judge that he was a teenager or she would have his fingerprints taken. He was wanted by Interpol and he knew this would likely send him to jail. So he decided to pose as someone from the U.S. in order to avoid jail time. He asked to use the phone and took this time to call the authorities claiming to be a shelter director. He was then directed to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He told them a frightened boy had turned up who would not disclose his identity, but who spoke English with an American accent. Bourdain offered a description of the boy that matched himself. Short, slight prominent chin, brown hair, and a gap between his teeth and asked if the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children had anyone similar in the database. After searching, a representative said the boy might be Nicholas Barclay, and Bourdain decided to steal his identity. Nicholas Barclay's grainy black and white missing person flyer and file were sent to Bourdain, and when Bourdain said Nicholas was indeed the American youth that was with him, the representative gave him the San Antonio Police Department's information. He then contacted them pretending to be a Spanish policeman and mentioned details about Nicholas before declaring the missing child had been found. The officer said he'd contact the FBI and the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. When Borden later saw a color photo of Nicholas, he was not sure if he could pull this off, but he decided to dye his hair blonde and have a friend give him tattoos identical to Nicholas's. He hoped since Nicholas had been missing three years, the family wouldn't know how Nicholas would have aged, so he had a chance. Bourdain truly thought he wouldn't be able to convince Carrie.
0: When Bourdain heard Carrie was on her way to Spain, he actually ran away fearing he couldn't pass this off and would go to jail. However, the police quickly found him and just figured he was nervous at being reunited. Bourdain claimed he had always felt like an outcast in his real life, so he viewed posing as Nicholas as a chance at a new life and to have people who loved him. He claimed that when Carrie arrived, she gave him all the information he needed, and that's how he got the questions correct when the Spanish judge asked him about who the family members were before they allowed him to leave the country. Beverly Lee has later shared that while Carrie has a good heart, she is easy to manipulate. Carrie also faced a lot of pressure being the family representative and deciding if this person was her missing brother. She told The Guardian, quote, your heart takes over and you want to believe, end quote. Once in America and living with Carrie, he looked through drawers, home video and photo albums to learn as much about Nicholas as he could. Bourdain was arrested in 1998, and later that year, he pled guilty to perjury and illegally obtaining a passport and was sentenced to six years in prison. Bordan told the courtroom, quote, I apologize to all the people in my past for what I have done, end quote. While in jail, however, he made hundreds of collect calls from the phone in his cell claiming he had info on missing persons cases trying to con others. Following his release, Bourdain was deported to France. Three months after being deported, he attempted to steal the identity of missing French teen Leo Bailey. He returned to Spain, and in August of 2004, Bourdain claimed to be an adolescent boy named Ruben Sanchez Espinosa, whose mother had been killed in the Madrid bomb attacks, which had taken place earlier that year. Burdan was then deported back to France when his identity was uncovered. Finally, in 2008, Burdan assumed the false identity of 15-year-old orphan Francisco Hernandez Fernandez and briefly attended a junior high school in Pau, France. According to The Guardian, a school administrator saw Burdan on a TV show and thought he looked exactly like a student at her school. She informed the principal the next day who called the police. Burdan was eventually charged with obtaining and using a false ID and received a six-month suspended sentence. After Bredan was caught, the FBI began questioning Nicholas's family, believing they potentially had something to do with his disappearance. Burdan like many others, was unsure as to why Nicholas's family Was so quick to accept him. People wondered if they were so willing to accept him because the person responsible for his death would never be punished. One theory or rumor is that Jason was involved in Nicholas's disappearance or knew information about the disappearance. Jason was said to have a quote-unquote violent temper and show quote-unquote erratic behavior after Nicholas went missing. Many felt his guilt after telling Nicholas to walk home was hard for him to handle. Bordan claimed that Jason was the only one who didn't seem to quote-unquote buy. He was Nicholas, and that gave him a gold cross before saying goodbye and not returning.
1: When the FBI questioned Jason around the time Bourdain was discovered, he was not very cooperative and essentially told them he knew all along it wasn't Nicholas, but wasn't going to tell his family that. Due to his responses, officials became suspicious of Jason, who refused to speak to authorities again without a lawyer present. Bodan later said, quote, "It was clear to me that Jason knew what had happened." End quote. Parker also claimed that he had accused Jason of murder, saying quote, "I think you did it. I don't think you meant to do it, but you did, end quote, to which Jason had no response. Sadly, Jason died of a cocaine overdose not long before Bourdain was arrested, and some wondered if it had been a suicide. Beverly was given two polygraph tests, and both times was asked if she knew Nicholas's whereabouts. On the first test, she was deemed to have answered the question truthfully, and on the second, it was indicated that she was lying. Authorities believe there have been drugs in her system at the time of the first test. When confronted with the results, Beverly tried to run out of the room. She later told the guardian that she was not a violent person and that she worked hard to raise her children. She also claimed that the family kept making excuses for Bourdain, but that she did have doubts because he just didn't act like her son and she was not able to bond with him. When Bourdain told the FBI that, quote, the family killed him, end quote, in regards to Nicholas, a homicide investigation was opened. It was eventually closed, however, due to lack of evidence. There were no witnesses or DNA, and authorities could not say for sure if Nicholas was even dead or alive. Nicholas is still considered a missing person. He was last seen wearing a white t-shirt, purple pants, black sneakers, and carrying a pink backpack. Today, he would be 41 years old. If you have any information about his disappearance, please contact the San Antonio police at 210-207-7484. Del, what do you think of this wild, wild story?
0: It has so many twists and turns that it's unbelievable that really the main reason why police even have an inkling of who committed this crime, it's because someone decided to steal his identity. And I do think it's really suspicious how quickly the family accepted him. I know that there's a lot of emotions involved when you think that you have a missing family member back, but... Based on what Bourdain was saying, he did a half-assed job of impersonating him and was only able to remember things because he had memorized it based on what Carrie told him and other things that he found. And I just feel like the family should have noticed that He didn't have like an emotional response to questions. He had more of a logical response, like, okay, I remember seeing that. So this is the correct answer. I do think that Jason has something to do with the disappearance. And it is very unfortunate that we'll never know what truly happened to Nicholas because of the family involvement and the fact that the likely perpetrator has passed away. What are your thoughts?
1: It's such an interesting story with so many layers. And it really is something straight out of a movie who would ever think, I mean, maybe somebody would think to impersonate a missing person, because we're going to talk about a few more people that did it, but who would ever think to go to the length that Bourdain did to get away with it and he got away with it for like four to five months, which that's not a significant amount of time, but to live with these people and to pretend to be someone, that's wild to me. It's really it is unbelievable. I feel bad for Bourdain because I do think he's got some undiagnosed mental health issues and he wants love. That's what he said. He just wants someone, a family to love him. He had a difficult childhood, but by no means excuses what he's done and the suffering that he's caused to families. And I honestly, money wasted too. I have some quotes from some interviews that he's done. I believe this was in the, a guardian article, which we'll have linked in our episode description. Someone that was interviewed said, usually people con for money. His profits seem to have been purely emotional, which I think is really interesting. And again, really just sums up what he was doing. Do I think he wanted some attention as well? Yes, totally. And kind of going off that, Bourdain told the interviewer, quote, I don't want you to make me into somebody I'm not. The story is good enough without embellishment, end quote. And I also think that really sums it up too. I think he does probably take a little bit of pride in what he did. He's right. The story is good enough without embellishment. There are also some really weird similarities between Nicholas and Bourdain. Again, two young men that definitely struggled emotionally, maybe mentally as well, not the best childhoods or home lives. And Nicholas actually went missing on Bourdain's birthday. So a very weird coincidence to a very weird story. I agree, Del. Unfortunately, it does leave me wondering what the family knows and what they won't own up to, and I really hate to say that because you don't want to think about anyone hurting a child or a sibling, a loved one, but there is definitely more to the story, and we just don't know all of that because of Jason's death. Unfortunately, I don't know if we're ever going to know what the real story with Nicholas is. And that's really heartbreaking because everyone deserves justice. Beverly did say that she believes he would have gotten into a car with someone he didn't know. So that is a possibility, too, if he really was trying to get home. Could he have gotten into a car with someone that just took the opportunity to hurt him? He seemed like he really could defend himself and stand up for himself. And he was described as street smart. So... Of course, that doesn't mean someone couldn't have taken advantage of him still, but it kind of makes me question things. But yeah, just hearing some of the family's descriptions, interactions, how they reacted to things definitely leaves me with a lot of questions.
0: So when it comes to the polygraph test, what are your thoughts on that? Because She took two, and it seemed like the first one where she was telling the truth may have been influenced by drugs. Do you think that she knows what happened to her son, but is protecting Jason, or do you think that the results are just inconclusive?
1: I don't know exactly. So we didn't mention this, but Beverly had a history of heroin addiction, and I believe she was taking methadone, which... So methadone, for anyone that doesn't know, is a medication used to treat opioid use disorder, opioid use in people. So authorities think That she had methadone in her system when she took the first polygraph. And then by the time the second polygraph test was given, it was out of her system. And that's what gave that indication that she was lying on that question. I don't know what else was asked. I would think that there would probably be more indications that she was lying other than just on that one question so I don't know and the question again was if she knew Nicholas's whereabouts so that could mean you know she knew that he was like in Las Vegas somewhere or that she knew him and Jason maybe got into a fight when they got home and it escalated and Nicholas died it could mean anything like that it could mean she was involved somehow I really don't want to accuse anyone of anything, but I think something is up. And I do think Beverly knows more than she's letting on. I don't think Carrie does. It seems like she was not living at the, I don't know if she wasn't living at the home, but Carrie was the oldest of the three and she had her own family. She had two kids and a husband and she was living, I think like 30 some miles away at the time that Nicholas came back in 97 and was actually Bourdain so I don't know if she was maybe a little more distant then because she would have been raising a family still then when Nicholas went missing but I think I don't think Carrie was involved that's just the feeling I get
0: I agree with you I don't think that Carrie was involved and you know they spoke to her how she was gullible and honestly just wanted to believe that Dan was actually Nicholas and wasn't going to fight that feeling that she had. And I mean, if you think about the specific question that Beverly was asked, do you know about the whereabouts? She could have passed that question just on the basis of like her not knowing where the body was buried. So technically she doesn't know his whereabouts. She just knows what happened to him. So I would like to know like the other questions that were asked on the polygraph and how she answered those. And I don't know if there's any legal repercussions that she could face now, but I would hope that one day she would let the authorities and the public know what happened to Nicholas.
1: Like we kind of hinted at just now, Frederick Bourdain is not the only one that has ever impersonated a missing person, and we're going to talk about two specific cases of that. The first is Timothy Pitson and Brian Michael Reedy.
0: On May 11, 2011, six-year-old Timothy Pitson was dropped off at his Illinois elementary school by his father. Not long after, his mother, Amy, picked him up claiming there was a family emergency. The following day, they were seen on security footage at the Kalahari Resort in the Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. This was the last time Timothy was seen. On May 13th, Amy called her mom and several other family members and told them that she and Timothy were safe and not in danger. The next day, Amy was found dead in her Rockford, Illinois hotel room by a maid. She had died by suicide. Timothy was nowhere to be found. Amy left a suicide note. In it, she apologized for the mess she created and said that Timothy was safe with people who loved him and he would never be found. Then in April 2019, a teenager was found wandering the streets of Newport, Kentucky. He said his name was Timothy Pitson and that he had escaped a sex trafficking ring. However, the following day, the FBI shared that it was not Timothy, but instead 23-year-old Brian Michael Reney. According to People Magazine, Rini was, quote, an ex-con recently released after being imprisoned for stealing and burglary, who's previously tried to pass himself off as a sex trafficking victim. He told authorities he adopted Timothy's identity after learning about Timothy's case and his father's devoted search on ABC News 2020, end quote. Rini's brother claimed that he was on the autism spectrum and was living with bipolar disorder. Rini pled guilty to aggravated identity theft, and in 2020, he was sentenced to two years in prison with credit for time served. Timothy is still missing. Anyone with information is urged to contact the Aurora Police Department at six three zero two five six five five zero zero
1: the next is Kanhaya singh in february 1977 16 year old Kanhaya singh the only son of a wealthy landlord kamashward singh disappeared while walking home from school in the east indian state of bihar he was reported missing but the police search amounted to nothing and singh's father was devastated A village shaman visited the family and told them their son was alive and would, quote-unquote, appear soon. Then in September 1981, a man in his early 20s arrived in a nearby village. He told the locals that he was the, quote-unquote, son of a prominent person of Mergawan, Kanhaya's village. Rumors spread about the man's claims, and Kamishwar visited the village. Several neighbors accompanied him and told him that the man was indeed his son, and he took him home. Police records show that Kamiswar said, quote, my eyes are failing and I can't see him properly. If you say he is my son, I will keep him, end quote. His mother, Ramsaki Devi, was not convinced he was her son as the man did not have distinguishing scars and could not identify any family members in photo albums. At some point, she even filed a case against him, accusing him of being a fraud. Even with Ramsaki Devi's allegations, the mysterious man, who was actually Dayanard Gosain fully assumed Kanhaya's identity. He went to college, got married, raised a family, and was living a luxurious lifestyle with his inheritance. His quote-unquote sister, Vidya, did her best to expose Gosain, and the case was heard over four decades by at least a dozen judges. Finally, a trial court held the hearings beginning in February 2022. In court, Gozain was asked by Judge Mishra where he had lived and with whom, during the four years, he went missing. Gozain was evasive and told the judge that he had stayed with a holy man in his ashram in Gorakhpur, but he could not provide any witnesses to back up his claim. He also told the judges that he had never claimed to be the landlord's lost son. He said Singh only quote-unquote accepted me as his son and took me home. During the trial, he refused to provide a DNA sample, which was originally requested in 2014 to match with Vidya to prove that they were siblings. At one point, the defense even brought forward a death certificate declaring Dayanad Gosain was dead. The certificate was dated May 2014, but said that Gossain had died in January 1982, and it was quickly ruled out as a forgery. Judge Mishra found 62-year-old Gosain guilty in April 2022, and in June, a higher court upheld the order and imposed seven years of quote-unquote rigorous imprisonment on Gosain. In total, Gosain impersonated Kanhaya Singh for 41 years, and Kanhaya has never been found. Tell any thoughts on either of these stories?
0: <laughs> so starting with the first one that we looked at, I think that it's a tragic case and I do wonder if Timothy is safe. It seemed like Amy had a plan that she wanted to lay out and I wonder if that plan did actually include giving Timothy to someone who would look after him but my concern is the fact that despite any media coverage, he hasn't come forward. So that just doesn't make any sense to me. And when it comes to Rainey, he seems really similar to Bourdain in a sense of he was a career con artist who just wanted to pass himself off as a younger child, which we're going to talk about more a little later. And I do think that the sentence was really short only two years with credit for time served doesn't seem like enough time for someone who stole someone else's identity. When it comes to the second case, 41 years is such a long time to impersonate someone else. I wonder at some point if Gassan had trouble even remembering who he was originally. Because if you think about it, he lived as Kahari San for more years than he lived as his own self. I also wonder when it comes to this case, like, what happened to all the money? Like, was he ordered to pay it back? Was it just gone? Like, where is the money at? And I also wonder, like, what was the reaction of his wife and children? Because she essentially thought she was marrying someone that she didn't actually marry. And so is their marriage invalid? Is she still with him? Is she still supportive of him? So many questions about this case. Both of them are definitely interesting cases and one where I have many more questions than I have answers. What about you?
1: It's crazy to think that Gossein had gotten away with this for 40 years, even after multiple people said, you are not who you say you are, and did their best to try to stop him. One of the articles that I had read about it said it kind of highlighted some judicial issues in India, which I don't know too much about, but I think that's kind of an interesting aspect of the case, too, that most likely let him get away with this for much longer? And that is a good question. I don't know what is supposed to happen with the money. I will say one of his sons did seem like he was taking this kind of hard and that he was supportive of his father still. He said, you know, like, my father is who he says he is. That's how I know him. That's who I know him as. So very strange case, but I'm glad it was brought to justice because how frustrating for the family for Vidya who was working so hard to try to get the truth out. And I just need to take a minute to talk about this fake death certificate. Like you can't even try to tie up loose ends and get that date of May, 2014 out of there. Come on. How did he get away with it for so long? <laughs> That's interesting to me with timothy pittson i think this is a, a pretty it's one of those cases where a lot of people do want the answer to it it's kind of popular uh i would say within the true crime community and not like a ton is known i wonder so when you said del that you know if he's living with someone why hasn't he come forward there are some rumors in a few missing child cases that people think they were somehow given to Amish families and raised Amish. So I'm wondering if that is possibly what happened with Timothy. I agree. It does seem like his mom definitely had a plan in place. And I do wonder why she didn't feel comfortable leaving Timothy with his father or another member of her family. That's a really interesting aspect of the story. And I don't know if we're ever going to get answers in this. I really hope we do. I feel like this is something that we could get answers to because there have been stories of missing children who were taken as babies in the hospital and then years later they find out their parents aren't really their parents. So I have a little bit of hope for this. It's not a case I know super well but I wanted to mention it because I do think it's interesting and you're right about Rini and Borden having some similarities too and I'm glad that They found out so quickly that Renee was not, in fact, Timothy. That definitely saved. I'm sure that hearing that Timothy was found for his family members was really, you know, exciting. And then all of that just came crashing down just a day later. All that to say, I'm glad that they're suffering. They have to suffer now after the fact, but they didn't have to live for a few months like Nicholas's family did, thinking that they're living with their son that was returned. And now he's not who he says he is. So now we've talked about three instances where someone went ahead and impersonated a missing child or teenager. So what makes someone do that?
0: In relation to Brian Michael Rainey, CNN interviewed several mental health professionals as to why someone would impersonate a missing child. Dr. Gail Saltz, Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York's Presbyterian Hospital told CNN, quote, A young adult may be feeling lost, may be feeling like he doesn't have anybody or anything, and having a fantasy that he could be wanted, looked for, be rescued, and be taken care of by family. End quote. She added that, Quote, an impersonator could be running away from something, end quote. She continued by saying, quote, a young man who feels he is a lost boy coming to the idea that he could be an actual lost boy isn't so far-fetched, end quote. It is also important to note that someone's early 20s is the peak of presentation for several psychiatric illnesses. Rini, bordan, and Gasson were all in their early to mid-20s when their impersonation started. Jeffrey Gardier, a psychologist and associate professor at Toro College
1: of Osteopathic Medicine, said there could be different issues driving someone to impersonate a missing child. He said, quote, if they're not doing it for financial gain, then it is something that is without looking at malingering here. We're looking at perhaps someone who does have some legitimate mental health issues, such as anxiety, depression, perhaps even a Munchausen syndrome by proxy, where they are assuming that identity in order to get a lot of sympathy and attention, end quote. He also added that it's possible that a person, quote, imposes this fake identity to get some attention, end quote. Gardier said, you show them the DNA results and they say they aren't the person and you ask them why and you cannot get them to tell you. It speaks to a deeper psychological issue. I think that's what may be going on here. It seems like there are deeper psychological issues going on, probably some sociological things, end quote. Dell, any thoughts on any of those statements?
0: I definitely agree with everything that was said. There's definitely some deep psychological issues that go into pretending to be someone else. And this goes beyond role-playing or acting. These are people basically taking over others' lives and taking over their relationships with their families. And especially when you get into like Gasan, who did it for over 40 years. I definitely do think that at some point they all had identity crises and they didn't know what to do. So they wanted to detach themselves from who they truly were. And they took on the identity of missing children, which for me, it seems like, The reason why they do that is because it's the easiest way to start the impersonation. They don't have to worry about that person saying, no, that's not the real me. I'm the real me. They don't have to worry about that if it comes to a missing child or teen, especially one that's been missing for a significant period of time because then they're able to use the fact, like we talked about before, how the longer the age gap is, the more likely they can pass off any changing features as just a part of the aging process versus because they're a completely different person. I do think that it's interesting that it was connected with the onset of the presentation for psychiatric illnesses. I do wonder if there are psychiatric illnesses going on. I know that we have mentioned that. Rini may have been on the spectrum or bipolar. But I wonder when it comes to Bordana Gaston, whether there was some mental health issues that were either diagnosed before the impersonation or after it was discovered. What are your thoughts?
1: I think for Gosan it was more of a financial motive than anything psychological, but you know, I'm not one to rule that out. But I think everything that these professionals said definitely makes sense and we said this earlier too that it sounds like there was some mental health illness in there mental health struggles going on and again that whole the fantasy of Could I be someone that's being looked for to be taken care of by a family? What would that be like? And then kind of like a fixation on that. And then that's how it comes to reality, impersonating someone. Definitely agree that it is interesting to talk about the early 20s being when a lot of mental health issues show up for people and that all three of these men were in their 20s. And I think the mention of Munchausen syndrome by proxy is really interesting too. And I can see that going on. I know we talked about how Bourdain had kind of just... He was probably one of those kids that just made up things all the time, which his teachers did say he was, but we all grew up with somebody like that. Someone that just constantly made things up and children lie. Children say things that they don't mean all the time. But when it was becoming as constant as it was with Bourdain, I mean, he went as far as to pretend he had amnesia and it wasn't just like a day that he did this. I think it was like an extended period of time that he did this for So very interesting. And again, all of these elements adding to these stories to just make them, frankly, like more interesting and more that you want to learn about.
0: That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Nicholas Barclay's disappearance and Berdan's impersonation. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with an episode focused on the murder of Matthew Shepard. As always, stay safe.